This is Valor Radio. Valor, strength of mind and spirit that enables a person to face danger with resolve and determination in battle or in any other situation. Valor, like that displayed by veterans of every branch of the military throughout our community. This radio show, Valor Radio, salutes all of you who have raised your right hands to volunteer to protect and preserve our unique American way of life. Thanks for joining us and your brothers and sisters in uniform. When liberty's in jeopardy, I will always do what's right. I'm out here on the front lines, sleeping peace tonight, American soldier. Now, Valor Radio. Well, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coasties, guardians, and LEOs, welcome on into the big tent here of uh, Valor Radio. Here's Colonel Paul Simonelli. Morning, Robert. Back in the studio again. Yes, uh, thank you for uh, carrying the bucket this week, gentlemen. Steve, thank you for uh, carrying the bucket last week. Yes, we must must introduce uh, Captain Steve Mamano, USN retired. There you go. Thank you. In the studio with us today, we have a special guest, but we also have a guest waiting on the phone, and so we're going to start with that, and then we'll jump right in. Dean, are you there? I am, Paul. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Uh, uh, Thanks for getting up extra early uh, out in Kansas, and uh, uh, we appreciate you. I know it's uh, uh, very early for you, but appreciate you coming on. We've been uh, following what's been happening in France, particularly in Paris, the last week or so. And uh, I was thinking, who else? But uh, I know you've spent some time over there working with their folks, their police folks and others. And I thought it would be great to have a short conversation about uh, your impressions about uh, what you're seeing over there and uh, uh, where you think it's going to. Sure, I'd be happy to. So... uh, uh, I know you've done some work with the police. I know you've spent some time in France. Uh, this all, uh, what's going on there, at least uh, the trigger for it, uh, no pun intended, was the, a shooting of a 17-year-old uh, African uh, immigrant that uh, during a traffic stop. Uh, different stories about what uh, led to the shooting. Um, the original police report was that he tried to leave the scene and was going to run over two police officers. And so the officer shot, said his intention was to wound, not to kill. Um, and with the car moving, the, instead of hitting him in the leg, which he intended, he I don't know how he hit someone in the leg in a car, but uh, ended up shooting him through the chest. And, and uh, the young man, 17-year-old, died as a result of those injuries and really sparked a flame in uh, Paris, uh, protests that have been going on every night since then for about a week. Um, 45,000 police officers and law enforcement. And maybe you can explain to us a little bit, too, because I keep talking about uh, law enforcement. I'm not sure, you know, police, how they how they compare to our police or otherwise, but uh, have been engaged in trying to uh, quell uh, what's been happening. Thousands of arrests. Uh, Some politicians homes have been attacked and uh, burned. Um, uh, what, What are your initial impressions about what you're seeing over there? You know, Paul, I was just over there in, in the spring, and I go about two to three times a year to conduct some, some training issues with the French police and their security forces. It's, uh, it's, we're seeing about probably about 10% of what's going on over there on, on our media. 
it's not just Paris, but also Nice and Bordeaux and Marseille, and and it's it's really most all major metropolitan areas over there, and spreading out into the suburbs now too. When you mentioned their the police forces are heavily engaged, and the French police are it's quite a bit different than the way we do things. They're basically two two main groups of of the general police as we would think of it, the gendarmes, which are a national police force. And if you look at them as how we look at a state police force in a, in a state, in any of our states. And then there are the municipal police, which are the uh, city police, and they also take care of the rural areas. So they're both a city and, a, and almost a, a sheriff's office at the same time in many cases. And they're woefully ill-equipped generally to take on such thing with both equipment and, and personnel numbers and training so uh you know the the few uh pictures that we've seen in video it seems like looks like stormtroopers some of the police i guess they must have an elite force or some that at least uh those are the ones that they're photographing look like they're pretty well prepared i i remember several years ago a, a couple both were police uh supervisors uh and were intact in their home and I remember what was so compelling to me is that they weren't allowed to take their guns home. So when they were attacked in their home, I don't know if you remember that occurring, but a very different set of rules and rules of engagement than uh, what we have here, I would take it. Yes, uh, very much so. Now, that's all changed, and it was because of that couple. And, you know, everything everything needs some type of tragedy for it to change, much like we did with with Columbine and, and some other horrific acts for us to change our tactics and techniques. The same thing happened in France, and they are much more, um, oh, I would say, non-restrictive now for the officers to uh, to carry uh, off-duty, which was, you know, just kind of unheard of before all of this started taking place several years ago with a, with a couple, as you rightly said, that were attacked in their home and killed, both of them uh, stabbed to death. So it's, uh, in regards to the, to the other, well, it looks like specialized forces that you're seeing. That's exactly what you're seeing. Uh, you're seeing the, you know, GIGN, which is a, a national counter-terrorist group, but then they're also, you know, hostage rescue, and, and they're some pretty very well-trained, very well-equipped, well-funded forces in France. And then there's a, more like a, a BRI, which are almost riot police, um, very well-funded, well-equipped, well-trained. But there's just not many of them, and they are concentrated in fundamentally in Paris and then sent to other places as needed or as requested. But, uh, you know, that, that well runs dry pretty quickly with uh, the limited number of personnel that they have. And they're, they're being used for, right now, rescue of fire personnel that are, and ambulance personnel that are being attacked. Uh, the, uh, well insurgents or whatever you want to call these, you know, these characters that are they're riding and taking over are very pretty well organized. You know, I won't say they're they're well equipped or, or well um, trained, but they are well organized. And it's a lot like what we saw here during our, you know, the riots of twenty twenty in that area. And they're breaking in and you know, getting weapons and of course they're having weapons brought in from outside too. So it's uh yeah, it's it's pretty bad over there and still and continues right now to be that way even you know, if you're trying, even if the president of France is going, oh, well, we're working on things, well, <laughs> they better work a lot harder than right now. So, uh, Dean, uh, let's st- just step back from what's happening on the ground. Uh, you know, with the time you've spent there, 
Uh, I was there last uh, April, spent some time in Paris, but I, you spent a significant amount of time there. Uh, it appears to outsiders, at least like, to me anyway, that there's uh, an issue with uh, assimilation. A tremendous amount of uh, uh, number of folks have come into the country from uh, the Middle East, from Africa, and uh, whether or not they're – I don't know if anybody can be assimilated into French <laughs> culture or not. Uh, you know, the French are – uh, seemed to, and, and like most Western European countries, you know, there's a there was a homogeneity to those countries uh, that lasted for hundreds of years, and um, you know now we're seeing all over Europe this influx. I, I know we're we're talking about France, but some of what has spilled over into Germany and some other countries. I was reading last night uh, what's happening right now. Do you what, what's the big picture when you, you when you're over there and you're talking with uh, these law enforcement folks and uh, it, what what is the issue about people not being mainstreamed into uh, French life? Well, the issue is uh, it's it's not a an issue of them not being able to mainstream into French life or a refusal to to allow these people to mainstream. It's it's the migrant refusal to to mainstream into French life or to assimilate. It's just an absolute refusal. Uh, they refuse to learn French language. They refuse to adhere to the to the norms and the laws and the, the customs of, of their host country who has welcomed them in so well and uh, and really have. Uh, but, you know, they, they just they don't want to deal with the other French people. They don't want to, you know, have any respect for the for the French citizens and, and custom schools, uh, institutions. So that's the, the major problem right now is uh, not that they're not being uh, welcome to assimilate. It's the refusal to assimilate. I think that's probably something we're seeing all over Europe. Uh, you know, we have a taste of it here in the U.S. If you, I don't know if you've ever been to Dearborn, Michigan, but uh, um, I spent, you know, I spent the time in Detroit, and folks that worked for me used to take me to Dearborn for lunch, and um, the street signs were not in English anymore. This, you know, the signs in the stores, uh, in restaurants, there was no English menus. Um, everything in foreign language. Uh, whether it was Arabic or some other language, I, I guess that's on steroids about what's happening in most of Europe right now. Yeah, and and it's you know it's primarily in Western Europe. You get it. I also do some work in, uh, in the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Bulgaria and, and those areas, and that's not a problem there because they have uh, very restrictive immigration laws. And you know you can't just swarm in, and uh, there is no real welcoming there because they have seen, and they're they're watching it right now what has gone on in in Germany and France and Italy and and uh, a lot of the northern countries where the crime rates, uh, especially in in you know sexual assaults, have just skyrocketed through the roof. And Sweden and Norway and you know even Finland that you and I of course have quite a bit of experience in when we were doing our missions over there. Right. Well, you know, I'd ask you to, you know, continue to monitor this. We're going to monitor it here and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, things will calm down. But if not, uh, we'll, let's chat 
uh, in the next couple of weeks if we see this starting to spread across Europe and uh, maybe talk about some of the differences when we get back together about what's how how immigration's being handled in Eastern Europe versus uh, or New Europe versus Old Europe, as Don Rumsfeld would say. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and right. and we'll go from there. All right, Dean, thank you so much for coming on this morning. Uh, uh, best to you, and uh, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. All right, folks, uh, that was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Dean Hudson and uh, talking about what's going on in France. We'll be back with more Valor Radio in just a couple of minutes. Your go-to for standard of specialized business insurance coverage. MGM Associates of Rochester, now serving the region and beyond in New York. Since 1984, MGM has provided leading coverage from a wide range of carriers. Not only home, condo, boat, motorcycle, and auto, but also specialized policies for all types of businesses, including nonprofits and law firms, livery insurance, property insurance, and bonds for all needs. MGM Associates of Rochester provides auto, workers' comp, health care, and liability coverage. Choose from virtual appointments or good old in-office, in-person consults by appointment at our Penfield office. Five-time consecutive winner of the National Best Practices Award, MGM is proud to support veterans groups. For your personal business, home, or professional insurance needs, meet the experienced staff at MGM Associates. Locally and proudly owned at 1745 Penfield Road in Penfield, 381-7008 or mgminsure.com. An associate of Finger Lakes Fire and Casualty, Route 227, Trumansburg, New York. The colors are red for valor, white for innocence, and blue for justice. Our nation's flag proclaims liberty for all. And our military service members continue to fight for the right to live in freedom. Honor their service and sacrifice with an American-made flag from the Stars and Stripes Flag Store. Visit eflagstore.com to shop now. All proceeds support Veterans Outreach Center and local veterans. Join Abate Monroe County, American bikers aimed toward education and help adult bikers ride free and safe. Check out our meetings on the third Friday monthly at Wise Guys Diner and Catering, 2811 Dewey Avenue. Join Abate for less than 50 cents a week. Google Abate Monroe County on the web. Hey, how about becoming a member of the National Warplane Museum in Geneseo, New York? Help us preserve history. Plus, you get some pretty fancy benefits. Visit us online, nationalwarplanemuseum.com. From Niagara Falls to the Adirondacks and from Canada to Pennsylvania, you're listening to Valor Radio. Uh, this is perfect music. I love this music. <laughs> I just want to repel. Yeah, I just, this is just great stuff. I could listen to this whole thing. I don't know. <laughs> uh, all right, we're back. Uh, we're the 70s were fun. This was great stuff. Um, we're back on Valor Radio. We're here with uh, our special guest today, uh, Brett uh, Soboroski. Um, 
we're going to talk about a few different things with Brett. Uh, for anybody who has had their head uh, buried someplace, at least for folks in this community, uh, and don't know, uh, about uh, two and a half weeks ago, Brett uh, finished a, a 50-day uh, journey that started in Florida uh, that involved uh, 50 continuous um, marathons, 50 days in a row, starting in Florida, ending at the police memorial um, at Civic Center Plaza, public safety building, uh, on June 11th. That's and an odyssey. That is. It yeah. is an odyssey. Yeah. And uh, um, once again, uh, you know, so often when most of us travel places, we focus on how fast we can get there um, and miss a lot of what's happening around us. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've started to appreciate the trip as much as the destination. Mm -hmm. uh, Brett, I know you probably wanted to get home and get finished, but uh, you knew it was going to be 50 days uh, when you started. And uh, uh, first, let me welcome you. I didn't even get a chance to give you a chance to say hello or good morning. Glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> We're, uh, um, but you started this journey uh, 50 days before June 11th, and uh, uh, you did it. You did it. Did You've done some pretty extreme things, and we're going to talk about some of those. But when you started, were let me ask you this: uh, in all candor, were you confident you could finish when you started? Um, I was confident that I wouldn't quit. So I, I guess so. I, I wasn't sure how how it would look or how pretty it would be. But the, the only thing that put a little not doubt in my mind is I spent January and February in Florida. I snowboarded this year. So when I drove home March 1st, I was like, oh, my gosh, i got to run this whole thing. And I remember thinking, like, <laughs> I was tired when I got home driving 18 and a half hours. And I was like, oh, gosh, like, you might have bit off a little more than you could chew on this one. But it worked out. So uh, you, uh, you chose eight states. Um, that's uh, tied to the tactical unit in, uh, at the Rochester Police Department. Their numbers all begin with eight, right? Is that... Uh Yes, their their unit designator is, is eight. eight. That's how I got it. So that, if I understand, that's why you chose eight states uh, for MAS. Uh, and why? Um, where'd you come up with the forty-eight originally? Because it was it was just did the math. I I mapped out a route trying to avoid major cities. The only one I had to run through was Augusta, and then it came down. Originally, it was like thirteen hundred and I think seventy miles ish, which turned out wow. to be forty-eight marathons. And then somehow along the way, I got here a little sooner than I was supposed to. Like, I swear that, that Google Ma or Apple Maps yeah. on your phone changes. Sometimes oh, yeah. it'll be like 37 miles. Sometimes it'll be 36 miles. It's the same route. I don't understand, like, how that changes. But we ended up being a little shy. So it was just doing the math. How, that's how it came out to 48. I was wondering how you did that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 48 days, it turned into 50 because you did get here. Right on time. You didn't take any uh, extended breaks. When I say extended breaks, more than uh, 12 hours of a break between, or 12 or 16 hours mm -hmm. between uh, marathons any given day. Um, so uh, tell us uh, if you want to just a little bit uh, breakdown. I don't, did you look at, now that you've had some high, time for hindsight, did you look at the journey? You know, have you broken it into pieces at all, or were different things were happening with you physically and psychologically during the run? I did. And it was, uh, you know, some of it, I may have been like a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy because 
when people do this, run across, usually they run across um, west to east across the United States, which I, I, I was thinking of doing anyways. So this gave me a, a great reason to do it, but, you know, south to north, is they say you have to get through the first week. The first week's the toughest. Your body starts, you know, acclimating after the first week. They said you just got to stick it out. And the first week was tremendously difficult. And so I was like, okay, this is okay. Then the second week was even more difficult. And I was like, you people lied. Like, whoever told me this, like, I read these, po- you know, I listened to podcasts, read some books on it. I'm like, you're all a bunch of liars. And then after the second week is when I started figuring stuff out. And then my, then the middle two and a half weeks, I was really holding my own then. The first two weeks, I was pretty much drowning, like barely keeping my head above water. Then I started figuring out the recovery aspect of it, the mental, and more so the mental aspect of it. And then the two and a half weeks in the middle, I was holding my own squarely. And then at the end, the last two weeks, I was getting stronger. I was actually, my body was accommodating to the stress put on it and probably my brain more so. And I was actually running faster at the end than I ever had at the beginning. Well, I, I, we saw that. We were watching your times you were posting every day, and uh, I was just dumbfounded that, uh, you know, I, they weren't world-class, you know, times, but they were consistent. There was never a bad time, and, and we just started seeing them slip backwards and, and get a little bit faster, a little bit faster. And, um, I, you, you know, I had the privilege of watching uh, when you came uh, into New York State and uh, at the tail end of this mm-hmm. and um, I was I was let's let's talk about this for a minute a little bit surprised at your during the run routine <laughs> <laughs> particularly now you, I know you were burning a ton of calories mm-hmm. we'll talk about diet in a little bit but uh, I was pretty much dumbfounded when I saw your list posted in your support vehicle <laughs> right. of what you were eating and drinking and you know most people I think they would they would laugh uh, wouldn't believe that some uh, super athlete like you would even do some of that stuff but uh, when, when, talk about that a little bit and how how you ended up with what you were eating and drinking during your run so before in my and again you said Odyssey that's what I call this an Odyssey or an adventure in my past adventures I would eat that typical race food that was just like sugary chews and gels and stuff that's not very uh, you know when it comes to palate after a while they get sick of it mm-hmm. so this one I said I'm going to eat regular food that I enjoy so you know my first real like solid food of the run would be at seven miles I eat a pop tart uh, <laughs> you know and which was. Actually, the worst of all the foods because it's kind of dry, it gets stuck in your teeth. Then at the 13 mile mark, I'd eat a uh, uh, ho ho's. <laughs> like, you think about who doesn't love ho ho's, right? Like, it was not, I said my life really was horrible because the highlight of my life was a ho ho at mile 13. It made me happy. Like, that was the happiest part of the entire day was eating ho ho's. <laughs> and if I, was, if I was really hungry, I'd eat three of those things. <laughs> Incredible. Um, and then, little. oh yeah, then at mile uh, twenty two, I would have a, I would have like one of those little cherry or apple pies, <laughs> and like again, like you really look forward to eating it, and <laughs> it's all the same. It's just sugar, right? Uh, it's like uh, sugar and some car- and like a lot of carbohydrates, a little bit of fruit in there. Yeah, and it, yeah. and so it's, it really fuels you quite well. It was, uh, and I look forward to eating it off, and that changed my life. Like if I any other things I do, I'll eat normal food, not that like junky race food. So uh, and and you stuck with it. I guess that was the other thing that uh, um, there wasn't a lot of variation once you once you found your your rhythm and what you were going to drink and eat and when you were going to do it. Um, did, did that 
Do you think that made a difference for you, being consistent like that? I think it, I think it did. I, it, when I first started with my son in Florida, I wasn't drinking as much as, as I did. I probably wasn't eating as much, and I fine-tuned it. And I, I'm like a creature of habit. And so like my, my girlfriend found out the hard way. She came down. I was in Pennsylvania. And she's trying to cook me new food and give me different food when I'm running. I'm like, listen, like this is this is what I do. Mm. This is what I stick with. Like the old the old Brett who's like who's like caring and loving is gone. Like I just I'm doing my thing right now. And you, you got to make sure you you, you uh, go for a sure thing. Exactly. Yeah, because you don't want any issues. You can't experiment. Like no, you just, no. And I knew what food at night would you know would satiate my appetite, and I would feel better the next day. And she's trying, you know, she's she's Italian, so she's trying to cook me meatballs <laughs> and pasta and stuff. And I'm like, can't do it, Laura. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, consistency. Like I, I, like in my whole life, the one thing I I do is be consistent in most things. Yeah. Now, consistent or boring. It's probably the same. I'm not gonna lie. Like it's, it's, pre, it's like she always says. Like I have the like my when I eat at home, I just eat the same food. She's like, it's so boring. Don't you ever want to change stuff up? And I don't. All right, I'm hearing some music. We're gonna take a break, and we'll be back with uh, Brett uh, Sobrieski uh, talking more about his uh, Odyssey and uh, also a little bit more about what he's been doing the last forty years. We'll be back shortly with more of Valor Radio. Yeah, we'll be talking to Brett. Uh, by the way, uh, Sting. You have no idea who the King of Pain is. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be right back on WISL. Listening to Valor Radio with Colonel Paul Simonelli. There's a holdup in the Bronx. Brooklyn's broken out in fights. There's a traffic jam in Harlem that's backed up to Jackson Heights. There's a scout troop short a child. Cruise ships do it I know wild. Car 54, where are you? Yeah, we're just looking for police music around the control room here today. And, uh, he was in the Navy. It's the same again, Steve? He was in the Navy, Fred Gwynn. Uh, yeah, World War II. Fred Gwynn and then uh, uh, Joe Ross. What a what a what a piece of work he was. Yeah, <laughs> Tootie and Muldoon. Tootie and Muldoon, officer. So, uh, Brett, uh, you didn't take this whole fifty days of your life, uh, this journey on for just to prove you could do it, right? I mean, there was. Let's talk about uh, what motivated you to even want to do this. Yeah. I, um, so. You know, when when Tony was murdered in the line of duty, it just, you know, my perception was, and I, I believe it's reality, is that, you know, his death died in a news cycle or two in Rochester, you know, and unfortunately, we had a measuring stick, and that was Daryl Pearson, who was who was murdered in the line of duty eight years before that. So when Daryl was murdered, I mean, his story was in the in the local news for months and months and months. And there was fundraisers everywhere you looked. There was a fundraiser for the Pearson family. And it, that just didn't seem to happen um, with Tony. And, you know, I think it was because of the times that we live in, those last three years that we, we endured or were tortured by. And that a lot of that anti-police sentiment was still like it's still in the carpets and it's still in the walls. You know, it's, it's not gone yet. So I think that had something to do with it. And I just felt like he didn't get his due credit. Um, and the family didn't get, you know, what they deserve. So I, I, I wanted to try to change that to, A, bring awareness up and down the eastern seaboard to Tony's 
um, sacrifice and to raise some money. And not just not just provide financial support for the family, but emotional support. So they realized that we never would forget his sacrifice and that, you know, I, I just thought it wasn't right, you know, what happened after his death. So, so uh, September, um, what, September 3rd of 2014, uh, we lose Daryl Pearson, uh, tactical well, was he tactical unit member? He was. He was he tactical was. member also. And uh, you're right. I, I remember that. Uh, um, my brother had just uh, become chief of police. Uh, that you know, probably one of the hardest things for a chief to have to deal with trying to hold a, a force together um, and and to acknowledge and to recognize the sacrifice. Uh, um, it was it was a shock to our community. We hadn't had a police officer that died uh, violently um, in the line of duty in quite a while before that. And uh, I, I remember the pour, the outpouring by the community. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. It was a. I think it had a lot had to do with the perspective of police and still and the military at the time. We're we're still you know we're held in very high esteem. Um, and uh, it did seem like all the stops were pulled out. I didn't sense, you know, I, it was hard for me to judge uh, because I was a little closer to uh, um, the Daryl Pearson thing than I was with uh, Tony uh, Mazurkowitz, uh being killed July 22nd of last year. And right, I'm, I'm right on the date. Am I July? Um, I believe it was. I believe it was actually pronounced on the twenty first. Twenty first. Yes. Okay, the night of the twenty first, and um, and it. I remember. I'm, you know, looking out the window at my office. You know, seeing people getting ready to line up for the funeral at the war memorial. Um, I. But you're right. It did, it did seem to slip into. Uh, the abyss mm-hmm. shortly after it happened, and um, I'm not sure why um, why that was. I mean, we could sit here and try to guess, but nonetheless, you still have a family um, that's been you know forever affected, and your decision to do this. Uh, you know, I I didn't know Lynn. Um, I met her last year at one of the motorcycle. Uh, rallies or, or car rallies that were done last year, but that was the first time I had met her. But uh, you know, it seems like people have at least have tried to stay in touch and and acknowledge that. Um, I want to talk about uh, uh, the day that you finished the run. Um, I had the privilege of being at Whitehaven, Whitehaven uh, Cemetery mm-hmm. uh, that morning. You particularly dro- chose that route. So that you could uh, stop in Whitehaven, where both uh, Daryl Pearson and uh, Tony Mazurkowitz are buried, about uh, seventy-five yards from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, why was that important to do that that morning? Well, it was. It was. You know, and it wasn't my idea. It's funny during this whole run, like I lived my life in a little bit of a vacuum. Like I looked through straws as opposed to big picture stuff because I just had to run. So we knew we had a day extra. We didn't know where to, where to start or where to run that last day of the 50th marathon. I had no idea. So we were going to start at the academy because that's where I had finished, um, you know, a couple of days prior. So it was one of my good – one of my SWAT buddies is like, why don't you run out to the cemetery? And so I, I map it out, and it almost works out perfectly mileage-wise. It was just like – it was like a godsend that he had brought that up. So that's why we – you know, we wanted to run out there, and Lynn – you know, Lynn was going to meet us there. Um, you know, I was going to say thank you. So you know it was it was just a perfect plan, and then we ran by East 
East Rochester High School on the way out. And I'm like, well, gosh, you know, Daryl went to school here. So uh, we stopped on the way back, did some laps on the track, and, you know, in, in uh, Daryl's memory. And uh, it was just a, it was just a perfect it was a perfect last marathon to to wrap up those fifty those fifty uh, marathons for eight states for Maz. So uh, the the run finishes. Uh, um, it, it, everyone kept saying it's going to be a nice easy run. <laughs> the last the last five kilometers was open. You know, was open to the public. Yes. A lot of people signed up. But we had eight hundred some odd people sign up uh, for that run, um, and. It didn't end up being that little. What what happened? Well, so <laughs> so it was Ellen Brenner's her fall. First of all, she she uh, she runs Fleet Feet, owner of Fleet Feet, and and they were behind me right from the beginning. So she's like, "Just do your thing, Brett." Don't I said, "We'll all run together as a one big group." She's like, "No, this is like let's stretch this out, make this like a parade kind of, uh, you know, just a sea of runners." And there's 901 that signed up. So. Anything, when I ran all these marathons, I would get faster at the end. Like, I just would. It was the way I trained. It's the way I think. And so you could just feel this momentum building behind me. I had all the tack officers with me that worked, you know, shoulder to shoulder with, you know, some of them also with Daryl. Um, but they had certainly worked with Tony. And I just felt this momentum, like, you know, footstep after footstep. And before I knew it, we were doing like a seven minute mile at the end. And I just saw people like breathing heavy around me. And my son confided to me at the end, who's a police officer. He's like, dad, I was going to throw up. He's like, what the heck were you doing? He's like, oh my gosh. He's like, before I knew it, we were sprinting. And I'm like, it didn't feel like a sprint to me, but um, it was, it was just awesome. There was just a sea of like support and love and fellowship and brotherhood and sisterhood. It was just an incredible feeling for this community. It really was. Well, uh, it, w- it was obvious. I, you know, we were we were standing at the finish and saw you coming in, and I said, "Boy, that doesn't look like a nice, easy jog." <laughs> and I was looking at the heads and the faces, and I'm seeing the red faces, yes. and I'm seeing the breathing, and of course, you know, you were pumping at 150 percent adrenaline at that moment. So I don't know if you were even feeling it. Uh, I wasn't, um, but I could tell the people around you that wanted to stay with you <laughs> were suffering terribly. Yes. And a good suffering. There's nothing wrong at all with it. But uh, uh, I, I have to say, you spent probably 30 to 40 minutes um, after you finished. You turned around and you acknowledged everybody that came across the finish line. And um, I thought that was an absolute class act. I know you probably had a hundred things on your mind. You know, your emotions were uh, probably amped up at that mm-hmm. moment, but you, you, stead, you know, you steadied yourself. And, uh, I don't know if you ever shook that many hands when you were running for sheriff. I did, I won. I, that was what my, that was my request. Like it, as selfish as it, it, it sounded to me, I was like, if people are going to take time out of their lives, their, their family lives on a Sunday, I'm going to, I'm going to shake everyone's hand or hug everyone for coming and thank them. And you did do that. And it was a great thing to see. All right. Well, we're, here's some music here. We'll be back shortly with our last segment of Valor Radio.
your go-to for standard of specialized business insurance coverage. MGM Associates of Rochester, now serving the region and beyond in New York. Since 1984, MGM has provided leading coverage from a wide range of carriers. Not only home, condo, boat, motorcycle, and auto, but also specialized policies for all types of businesses, including nonprofits and law firms, livery insurance, property insurance, and bonds for all needs. MGM Associates of Rochester provides auto, workers' comp, health care, and liability coverage. Choose from virtual appointments or good old in-office, in-person consults by appointment at our Penfield office. Five-time consecutive winner of the National Best Practices Award, MGM is proud to support veterans groups. For your personal business, home, or professional insurance needs, meet the experienced staff at MGM Associates. Locally and proudly owned at 1745 Penfield Road in Penfield, 381-7008 or mgminsure.com. An associate of Finger Lakes Fire and Casualty, Route 227, Trumansburg, New York. The colors are red for valor, white for innocence, and blue for justice. Our nation's flag proclaims liberty for all, and our military service members continue to fight for the right to live in freedom. Honor their service and sacrifice with an American-made flag from the Stars and Stripes Flag Store. Visit eflagstore.com to shop now. All proceeds support Veterans Outreach Center and local veterans. As a veteran of the United States military, I can finally get the opportunity to enjoy special events, things that we couldn't afford, thanks to Vetix. Every empty seat at a concert, a game, or a play is a missed opportunity to say thanks to a veteran and service member. We can give our veterans a special event where they, too, can create their own cherished memories. Visit VetTix.org. Find out how you can make a difference in a veteran's life. You're listening to Valor Radio with Colonel Paul Simonelli. We are back. Little Junior Walker. I'm a roadrunner, baby. Here's uh, the Colonel. Thanks, Robert. Uh, and we're back with uh, Brett uh, Soborowski uh, talking about his uh, sojourn from Florida to uh, Rochester in honor of uh, uh, murdered uh, police officer Tony Mazurkowitz. Uh, all right, Brett, you know, you, you can't do something like this without, uh, a lifetime or at least a a long, long period of, uh, I I don't want to say preparation, but it is preparation every day, uh, preparing for something in the future. Uh, you've, uh, you've done a lot. You've been a police officer. You've run for political office unsuccessfully in Orleans County. Nonetheless, you know, some things we can't control, Mm -hmm. um, and you, at some point in your life, uh, by your own account, uh, changed the way you perceived yourselves, both physically and mentally, and uh, uh, rose to uh, challenges, uh, individual challenges that uh, leave us, folks like uh, me just in complete awe of what you've been able to accomplish. Uh, you've written a book about it. Uh, the book is called uh, Gray Man, An Average Man's Journey to Personal Greatness, uh, trying to uh, explain to people how you got to that point and, and what the future may hold for you. Um, talk about it a little bit. Talk about your journey uh, to the got you to Florida to start this uh, uh, 50-day, 50-marathon uh, trek you went on. Just you know, I, I I started life and I continue to live life as a very average human being, the very average in every way possible. And the funny part, you both would appreciate this. 
when I was in high school, I tried to get into the service academies, Annapolis and West Point. But you know, they, you know who they don't take is average people. Like they just don't. They don't. They don't take people like me there. And I would have been a legacy in Annapolis. My grandfather as, as an Annapolis graduate. Really? Yeah. Yes. But just couldn't get. You know, didn't have any ability like normal SAT scores, normal you know physicality. So you know, then sixteen years of bad of bad time, smoking a couple packs of cigarettes a day. You know, not working out. Bad uh, role model for my kids. Um, and then just slowly turn it around. And this has been a, a lifelong progress. You know, the the latter half of my life. So it's not like it it happened overnight. But you know, this this eight states for mass thing was probably you know was the was the 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 hardest thing I've done. You know, because of the length of time of fifty days. Uh, but it all came down, you know, what it came down to, if you, if you, if you look at the book, is, is mental preparation. That, you know, being mentally tough or grit or stick to itness or intestinal fortitude, we can call it a million things, is really what, what makes us obtain personal greatness. It's not, you know, f- our athletic ability per se. And, and my, my, my form of greatness may vary different from everyone else's, you know, and that's, that's when I first discovered it, when I stopped comparing myself to everyone else. Like, I, I wanted to be globally great. And it was never going to happen. So I figured I can like I can achieve greatness by maybe where I began and where I finished. And that that's what this was with eight states for Maz. It was a uh, it was this journey like down this rabbit hole of going to bed at night and wondering if you're going to be able to run the next day because it feels like your calf's going to rip off your mm. the back of your kneecap and you don't know if it's possible, but you know it's it's the only choice you have is to get up and do it. And it was a uh, it was you know a tested me. It certainly tested me, you know, phys- physically and mentally the entire time. Nothing was easy about it. My girlfriend says you made it look easy, and I'm like, I rest assure you that every day was a challenge, was an epic challenge every single day to strap those shoes on. But I had great people helping me. I had the Peepernets, the Todd Baxters, all my SWAT brothers, my girlfriend, who people who sacrificed so much so that I could succeed. You know, and they they were selfless, and I was selfish during it, and. Um, but we made it all come together, and I think it kind of took on a life of its own. So this was uh, uh, this was something that was very public. People were monitoring every day. I'm sure they had added a little bit to your motivation. Um, but let's talk about before this and and when you when you finally started working out and doing the things that put you in a position where you were capable of doing this. Uh, talk about your motivation on a daily basis when people aren't watching. I think most of us would like to hear about that and, and understand, you know, what drives you uh, when no one's watching. You know, and, and the catalyst was, the, the real catalyst for my change was being around tough men. And I mean tough men, I call them SWAT brothers. When I got on the SWAT team at 37 years of age, I was probably, I was the oldest person to ever make it on that team at that age. And I got around the Todd Baxters and the Aaron Springers and the Fabian uh, Rivera's and the Mike Deals. And they, there was that saying, iron sharpens iron. And that's what I started to understand, although I was like a soft piece of lead at that time. Like they were hard, hard men physically and mentally, and I was not. So I wanted to, I wanted to be like them. And what I found out it was is consistency. Is that, you know, and again, I may be a boring person, but I have a consistent plan. Like I, I map, you wouldn't build a house without a blueprint. And I built my own house, which again, I say was the most, was the toughest thing up until I did eight states for mass, was building my own house with my own two hands. Nine months of labor of like sacrifice and persistence and failing and coming up short and then figuring it out. But um, 
having a written plan and having your why, like, why are you doing something? If you're doing it for someone else, then they could take that away from you. Whatever that, whatever that, um, motivation is, they can take that from you. But if it's for you intrinsically for you, no one could ever take that from you. So it was always having a, a good why, which eight states for Maz was simple. And then a consistent training plan of what I would do when I woke up in the morning, then, you know, what I would prepare to do the next day. And, and again, it's, it comes down to motivation is a bad word nowadays. And I, I don't think it's a necessary bad word, but motivation has to eventually turn into discipline. It's discipline. Discipline gets you it out of really, bed in the morning. It's, it's discipline in its purest form, really. Getting up and doing what you, your body's telling you, I don't really want to do this, but you're going to do it anyway. Absolutely. Someone yelling at you, like motivational-wise, on Instagram or any of the other social medias will only last so long. But if you could turn that into discipline, that's a great did, thing. Did anybody ever try to like psych you into something? Like say, well, like, ah, you, maybe you shouldn't do it today. You're, you're not looking too good. or And you just said, no, I'm going to get out there and do it. Well, my favorite thing was about this was three different people told me before I went, well, what's your backup plan if you when you don't make it? Oh, when I don't yeah. make it? I was like, I looked at him. I said, I don't have a plan. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, what happens when you don't make when? Like, not if, but don't. Wow. And, I, you know, and that was a huge log for me because you know, I have this that, giant. That's a big deal. You, you didn't have a plan B. You can't have a plan B because if, if, you, if you have a plan B for that, you plant that seed, it's going to grow. And right. then you're going to Failure is out. not an option. No, because right. if, you, if you have a plan for failure, then you're going to have. Then you're going to come true. You're going to fail, yeah. So I didn't. And, and that was huge. Like, so when I was running up these mountains in West Virginia, getting my oh, teeth kicked geez. in every day. I was thinking the same thing. When you, when you were in West Virginia, I thought, oh, but my I would, I would think about those three people that told me when I, wasn't gonna, when I was going to fail. And I would put that log on the fire, and it was a huge inferno. Like, huge motivation. I was watching something on TV the other day about the states, about the shape of the states. And they were saying how in West Virginia, you can go from towns that are like three miles apart, but you have to go like 11 miles out of your way to get there I'll because, never, the, because the mountains are so bad. You I never can... want to go back to West Virginia ever again. <laughs> <laughs> they, should, we, they should get that state. They, we should just like forget about that state, go back to 49 or something. I don't even like driving in West Virginia because at night you, like, uh, you get uh, turned around on some of these roads and you think you're going west and you're going east. You know, it's, it's, that's the way it works in that, in that state. And, you, you really got to know where you're going. And it's a tall state, like much like Pennsylvania. I was in there for I think nine days or or eight really? days, and it was it was eight or nine days too long in that state. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I guess uh, we can't uh, finish up today without. Have, have you been thinking about the future? Yes, and I and I was rel- I haven't pulled the trigger yet. There's a race in April over in Morocco. You run through the Sahara Desert. It's a stage race Jeez. over six days. It's 154 miles, and you have to pack everything on your back. The only thing they give you is water rations, and you sleep under these goat blankets they make into like makeshift tents. <laughs> and in the morning, you take off. Say it's 20 miles. And that next day, if the camels pass you that have like the tents on them, you're out of the race. And uh, it's called the the Marathon of the Sands, uh, Marathon de, de Sable. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of thinking about that, but I I'm not really sure yet. I'm thinking of Peter Finch. <laughs> yeah, right. Play of the Phoenix. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we can uh, we can make it. You you've you've done that distance before. Yes. So I you know I've I've done 176 miles when I ran for Special Olympics for 50 hours for the 50th marathon. But uh, yeah. I, I really, I really would like to go. You know, I'm not really too keen on international travel nowadays. But you know, over Morocco. But I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm toying with that. All right. And uh, so, 
that wouldn't be that, that would be exciting because of the travel and, and adjusting and and getting you know used to that climate and uh, uh, the, what uh, what what your let's talk about you you've accomplished this great feat right now um, you've had a tour two and a half weeks three weeks to uh, uh, think about it where where are you uh, where do you want to head uh, what gets you up now on a daily basis? The same thing as always, or or do you feel like you have to outdo what you did? Or no, I don't think I could ever outdo this, just because of how meaningful it was for me. But I, I'm just trying to get back to normal. I'm not even sure what normal looks like. I, I'm pretty sure I'm anemic right now. I'm exhausted when I go to bed. I'm exhausted when I wake up. Probably had to get some blood work done. But physically, I'm healing up fine. I'm just trying to get back to whatever life I had before, and, I, and I've got, I'm slowly getting there. All right, slowly. Great. And uh, finally, uh, did you the financial objectives for this? Uh, were, were you satisfied with the results? So I, I said a hundred thousand was the was the uh, was what we set for the the fundraising. We we surpassed that. Everyone said I should cut it to fifty thousand. I'm like, no way. We're going to make a hundred thousand, and we we're over a hundred thousand now for the family, which that's, is awesome. That's just fantastic. All right. Well, Brett, thank you very much, folks. Uh, grab his book on Amazon, Gray Man: An Average Man's Journey to Personal Greatness, and Brett, we're going to continue to follow you, and thank you for coming in and talking about your uh, life journey and about this one in particular. Folks, uh, let's keep our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coasties, Guardians, and those serving with them in your thoughts and in your prayers. We'll see you next week on Valor Radio. Raise a daughter and a son. Be a lover to their mother. Everything to everyone. Up and at them bright and early. All business in my suit Yeah, I'm dressed up for success From my head down to my boots I don't do it for the money There's bills that I can't pay I don't do it for the glory I just do it anyway Providing for 